Welcome to The Bike Show. I'm Jack Thurston. Today's edition of the show was recorded before the terrible news arrived from Australia that Mike Hall had been killed by a car while he was racing in the Indian Pacific wheel race. The news of Mike's death has been devastating for the many people for whom Mike was a friend and an inspiration. For his family, for his partner and for his closest friends, it's hard to imagine what they're going through right now. My thoughts are with them at this difficult time. I knew Mike and we'd spent some time together here in Wales. I've never met someone so accomplished yet so modest and unassuming about his achievements. I have no doubt that what Mike did on the bike has put him amongst cycling's all-time greats. But there was much more to the man than his physical and mental strength. He had style, panache, kindness, wisdom and wit. The world needs more people like Mike. And the world would be a better place if more of us would take his example as our inspiration. I hope that we might return on the bike show for a fuller appreciation of the life of Mike Hall. But now is not the time for that. It's all too new and too raw, I think. If you want to do something practical to help right now, there is a crowdfunding page that's been set up to raise funds to help Mike's mum, Patricia, with any of the practical stuff that she has to deal with and to aid the good causes that Mike cared so deeply about. I'll put a link to it on the Bike Show website. As you can probably hear, I'm out in the countryside on the lanes that Mike knew well. He lived just down the valley near Usk for a number of years. The sun's setting over the big skirid now and it's, a, it's been a beautiful evening. I am going to continue on with my ride and let you get back to the show. Welcome to the Bike Show podcast with me, Jack Thurston. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the moment that a German nobleman by the name of Karl von Dreis took two wheels, put one in front of the other, and leapt aboard an entirely new human-powered vehicle that he christened the Laufmaschine. It's widely recognised as the first ever bicycle. And today on The Bike Show, we're looking back at 200 years of cycling. My guest and guide on our historical journey is Dr. Michael Hutchinson, Michael is a former professional bike racer who dominated the British time trial scene for more than a decade. But he's also a talented writer. He's written books on his quest to go faster um, and writes a regular column for Cycling Weekly. His latest book has the pun-rich title Recyclists, and it's a history of 200 years on two wheels, and it's out this month. And this is, in fact, your third appearance on The Bike Show. So welcome back, Michael. It's nice to be back, Jack. Thank you for having me. I'm going to come straight out and say that I loved your book. I enjoyed the hour and I enjoyed um, the one about going faster. But this is the one that I can really relate to as someone who doesn't ride a bike in the way that you do, trying to go as fast as you can, but just loves cycling and, and loves the feeling of being part of a world of cycling and all the different kind of interesting people that populate that world. That's exactly what I was trying to do. I mean, there's a reason the book is called Recyclists and not Recycling or or A History of the Bike. It's, it's what I wanted to look at was, it was people like me, people like us, people 
over the 200 years of, of cycling, people who've just enjoyed it, people who have gone out with their friends or they've raced or, they, you know, there's been something about the bicycle that has clicked with them. And that was really just the idea was to to see, well, what was it like to be me or you in 1880 or 1850 or 1940 or 1960 or 1985 what what was it like for a cyclist well there's a lot of warmth humor and genuine affection for for the subject it's very much history from your own vantage point you're in there and and this the, the stories the warmth the affection as i said for for the subject just comes through off every page you're not just telling the dry history of the bicycles there are a number of well, there's more than a, a very large number of cycling history books that tell that story. And from a technical point of view, if you're interested in exactly what happened when, they can be good reference sources. But they're not page turners. And I have to say yours, I did feel, was a page turner. Um, that's very kind of you. I mean, I, I, I didn't well, I mean, I am interested in the history of the bicycle. I find it fascinating. But it wasn't, in this instance, it wasn't the book I wanted to write. There are, I mean, there are some lovely instances where the technology has had a profound influence on who rides bikes. Um, when we move from sort of penny farthings in the, in the mid-1880s to, to the modern safety bicycle, suddenly all sorts of people who weren't particularly brave could ride bicycles. And particularly women could ride bicycles when we got to the safety bike era because a woman in a long skirt, which was what was required in the, in, in the 19th century, was clearly never going to be able to ride a penny farthing. So the move from the penny farthing to the safety bicycle was a profound shift, not so much in the technology as in the whole sociology of cycling, um, if, if that's not a slightly, uh, a slightly over-the-top term for it. But for the most part, there have only been, uh, what, maybe four technological inventions in, in the history of the bicycle. There's been the pneumatic tyre, there's been the the chain, um, there have been variable gears, and there was way back there was the bicycle itself, apart from that. It's all been exactly the same. One sentence that you used that really struck me was you said that it's a story of different people doing different things for different reasons, but all of them identifying as cyclists. You clearly believe there's a common history here that we are all a part of. Yes, there is. There's there's a common history simply because people are defining themselves with with a bicycle. Um, It's anyone who calls themselves a cyclist. I felt went into the book. That was what I wanted to do was was look at anyone who who, who looked at themselves that way. There's also a considerable history of cycling by non-cyclists, um, if if that makes sense. Through the middle of the of, of the of the twentieth century, particularly between the wars, there were enormous numbers of bicycles. There were oh, well over ten million bicycles in, in in the UK in regular use among a population of at that point about forty million. And most of those people actually wouldn't have described themselves as cyclists. And for the most part they always disappear in in the history. It's very, very hard to find out anything very much about them because they were they were they were no more identifying as cyclists than somebody walking to the bus stop identifies themselves as a pedestrian and and as part of a pedestrian history. There were, you know, we have got tourists, we've got racers, we've got adventurers, we've got innovators, we've got in the eighteen nineties there was the society cycling craze for, for 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 the bicycle, and that wasn't cycling according to any sort of modern popular definition. There's no modern equivalent of what was going on amidst the House of Lords and the aristocracy on their bicycles in the eighteen nineties, but but it's still all cycling. One of the things that dawned on me in reading your book was that the bicycle and and a large part of its appeal. It's very paradoxical because on the one hand, a bicycle allows you to make a journey 
incredibly easily that would be much harder if you had to walk or run. A bicycle also enables you to kind of go much harder and deeper in terms of physical suffering and pain. And and you can kind of push yourself harder on a bicycle than maybe you can, or certainly for longer, than you might do walking or running or swimming or other kind of physical exercise. Has that sort of paradox struck you that it's almost at once a kind of machine that allows you to take it easy but also go really hard i've always thought a bicycle is is an enhanced you a bicycle just makes you better than you are it makes you faster it makes you in a way lighter nimbler and i I think it in a way it's just an extension of that i i agree there is a lovely paradox about and it it's simply it's simply because you know the faster you pedal the faster you go it's why i said earlier that i thought the variable variable gears were one of the big advances in cycling in the you know the motion what you do with your legs stays the same you just do it a little harder you do it a little bit less hard it doesn't have sort of the big leaps where you walk from from walking into running into running harder and that that gets increasingly difficult and and more aggressive as it goes cycling stays the same the whole way up it's just a question of how hard you push and it means that cycling is it's a lot of things to a lot of different people because at, at, at one end you have somebody riding to the shops on an electric assist bike who's just walking, really. They're going faster, but it's the same level of effort. It's the same kind of purpose. And at the other end, you get someone who is out for a five or a six hour ride with their friends or off to do a long sportive, which is a, a hard physical event. And there's a continuity between them. And in a lot of other ways, in, in, in pedestrianism, those two people are walking to the shops or they're fell running. And nobody thinks that they are really related to each other. But a bicycle as a, a single, simple mechanical device means that both of these people have a common identity. Um, and I think, to me, there's, there's, there's something very curious about that and something that I enjoy. And I think it. I think people who ride bicycles like that as well. I think people like the idea that if they're if 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 they're riding to work, there is a resonance between what they're doing and what Laura Kenny is doing at the Olympics. Um, I, I I think that is one of the lovely things about the bicycle. And it also engenders a kind of fellowship and a friendliness that is automatic between people who are riding bikes, doesn't it? Uh, it doesn't it? Doesn't I? I think cyclists should wave to each other but i sometimes do feel i am fighting something of a, of a rear guard battle on that one but yeah I, I i agree there is something about the fact that you all feel you're doing sort of the same thing people sort of say oh well i'm a cyclist and when someone says to me oh i'm 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 a cyclist i think well i don't really know exactly what you do on a bicycle but the fact that you're a cyclist is enough and i like that as you did your research for the book what were the most surprising or unexpected discoveries that you made about this history? In some ways, it's a little hard to keep track because of what was surprising, simply because I've known roughly about quite a lot of this for a long time. I've always been interested in it. I think one of the things I did enjoy finding out was the very significant resonance between the club cyclists of the, of the 1880s and the late 1870s and and modern cycling, the idea of of mainly young and young men heading out from the towns into the countryside on a Sunday morning to go for a ride together, and a little bit of informal competition, a little bit of companionship, a stop at a at a wayside inn for a, for a cup of coffee and and maybe a maybe a beer, 
and then ride home and get home sort of in the middle of the afternoon after after a day out in the countryside. And that seemed so similar to, to what people do today. I, I, I did. I enjoyed that, um, even if I wouldn't exactly call it a surprise. Well, that takes us neatly to a section from the book that you're going to read to us um, about one of the early bicycling clubs, because I guess the club was central to this idea of going out into the countryside. Uh, yeah, the, the, the club was central because it was the Victorian era. And the one thing the Victorians liked was a club that was, you, you couldn't swing a stick in Victorian England without hitting a club of some sort. So it was entirely natural that almost as soon as the bicycle was invented, the first club started to appear. So what I'm, I'm going to read to you, and um, I'll apologise, I haven't, I haven't read from this book before, so I'm probably going to find halfway through this that there's something I don't know how to pronounce, which is always embarrassing when you've written a book. <laughs> um, but this is about the Christchurch Bicycle Club, who were based in Dorset. They were not at all unusual, they were exactly the kind of club that, that thrived in that era. The Christchurch Bicycle Club from Dorset was fairly typical. Founded in 1876 by a local bicycle merchant called Ernest Clark and three of his friends, it quickly grew to around 25 or 30 members. The local paper reported on its club runs, 22 miles to Limington, 50 miles to Salisbury and back with a stop for lunch. Even nighttime runs on moonlit evenings were popular. Maybe that's because they tended not to be too strenuous and because they invariably took a substantial rest at an inn where the riders drank a very great deal and sang songs. They often included comic songs about the club and its members, which the riders composed themselves. Drinking and singing and drunkenly riding a penny farthing home over a rutted road in the dark sounds like fun, but it also sounds like a good way to keep the membership numbers under control. Don't overestimate the quality of the songs, by the way. The chorus of one of Christchurch's that was popular enough to have been a fixture at the annual club dinner went, Oh, we're jolly good fellows in the CBC. We're awfully jolly fellows, so we all agree. For we love one another and our captain as our brother. We're so awfully united in the CBC. Just because the Victorians could make their own entertainment doesn't mean they were all Gilbert and Sullivan. The Christchurch club had a bugler, as was usual. He relayed the captain's commands on the club run. This might equally have been done by the sort of general consensus that exists in a modern club run, but the Victorians seemed to like something more formal. It gave matters a sense of organisation and maybe an official feeling status, or perhaps just good old-fashioned self-important pomposity. Christchurch's bugler had his own calls, based on military bugling, for the muster, for riders to mount, to ride single file, to ride double file, to dismount and to take refreshment. Other clubs had an even greater variety. Buglers had, by all accounts, a tendency to work up their part. Blasts were regularly sounded toward local villagers of the club's approach, and the deafening warnings often continued long after the locals had cleared the way. This caused a certain amount of rather modern-feeling resentment. A contemporary cycling guide noted that the hostility cyclists might encounter from the bucolic intelligence. To look back, there is something goonish about a gang of young men in tweed jackets, knee breeches and stockings riding about the countryside and penny farthings blowing bugles at the locals. The thing is that the riding was rather special. Since the coming of the railways a few years earlier, many of the old coaching roads were almost deserted. Even the main roads were not much more than tracks. Photographs of the Great Road, now the A1M, taken in the 1880s just north of London, show it as not much more than two wheel ruts with grass growing up the middle. A club's run might cover many, many miles without meeting a single other road user, and when they did, it would probably be a ponderous farm cart. To ride the old roads on a bicycle was to set off into a little-known world in a way that doesn't make much sense now. The roads, even the roads close to home, were not really familiar. There were few maps and almost no signposts. 
Directions and distances from locals, assuming you could find some whom your bugler had not permanently alienated, weren't even all that reliable since most of them still rarely travelled far from their homes. While industry had changed the cities beyond recognition, the countryside would have looked familiar to someone from the Middle Ages. To master the bicycle, to take it on an adventure in this almost forgotten world was a wonder. To spend a day, or a couple of days, or maybe even to take a week's tour with a few friends on the old roads through the villages and the small towns that the Industrial Revolution hadn't laid a hand on, must have been like riding into a dream world. Oh, thank you, Michael. That's such an evocative passage, I think, of, of what it was like then, but also... For me, a kind of sadness, I think, that, that that world, although you say that we still ride out in the countryside and enjoy it, but that very early world is, is really long gone. Um, and, and even though hints of it may have continued into the 20th century, it's really that idea of bicycle, the bicycle as a way of escaping modernity is gone because modernity is pretty much gotten everywhere now. I think that's true. I mean, I last weekend, um, I for um, for a newspaper piece I'm writing, I actually took a ride from uh, Battersea Park, which was the the centre of the 1890s high society cycling craze, out along what was essentially the old Portsmouth Road, and out to the village of Ripley in Surrey. Um, and, and I did this because this was one of the old routes out of town. Uh, the Portsmouth Road was a very well-maintained road in an era, of, as I said in the in the extract, very bad roads. The Portsmouth Road is very good because it was what joined the Empire's capital to the Empire's biggest naval port. So it was a, a, a highway, a focus of, of cycling. And Ripley was about 20 miles out of London. And famously, Ripley had the smoothest road surface in England. Um, and cyclists used to ride out to Ripley and and take refreshment at the Anchor Inn and ride home again. That was that was the classic Surrey club run from the late nineteenth century. I mean, it's a ride that a lot of riders from that from that area of London still do. There were a lot of cyclists heading out the old Portsmouth Road to Ripley, and when I got to Ripley, there were plenty of cyclists there too. But it's it's a very very different. It's a string of high streets and suburban suburban estates and houses and enormous amounts of traffic, and it was very poignant in a way to do exactly the same ride. In a way, it's it's not an escape anymore. Not until you get right out to Ripley. Whereas in that era, once you got much beyond Battersea or much beyond Chelsea, you would have been riding through market gardens and. And then quickly out into proper old countryside, proper old Surrey, as Smithies and the coaching roads and the coaching inns. Um, it's very, very different. You're right. But there is a great paradox here that this product of the industrial age, the bicycle, found its chief appeal in allowing people to escape the industrial age. Yes, and it 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 was even more valuable for that through into the into the twentieth century cycling. Bicycles, for various economic reasons, slid down the the social order, the sort of the social hierarchy, um, and were actually much, much more valuable to to, to the working classes from from mill towns and uh, particularly up to the beginning of the Second World War. There was a very, very valuable escape there, which was actually of a lot more use to them than the the middle classes who rode bicycles in the Victorian era. And along the way, there is a cast of characters in this book that is is just stellar. I think that's the cliche. Um, <laughs> some really interesting people, some that I knew, 
some that I didn't. And, and it's always good to, to have a few um, new ones that, that came along. If you had to go for a bike ride, if you were able to go for a bike ride and recruit um, a handful of, of the characters from your book, um, who would you pick and, and where would you go with them? I would love to go, have gone for a ride with the Honourable Ion Keith Falconer. Um, I don't know what he'd have made of me, but I think I'd have liked him, who was uh, a Highland aristocrat from the 1870s, who was one of the tallest men in the country. He was six foot three in the 1870s, which made him uh, the Godzilla of, of, of Victorian cycling. The two things I loved about him. First of all, there was his great height, which meant he was enormously successful as a penny farthing rider because the size of your wheel on a penny farthing depends on your inside leg measurement. So the longer your legs, the bigger the wheel. The bigger the wheel, the bigger your gear on a penny farthing because whatever you do, one one turn of the pedals is one turn of the wheel. Um, so he was the world's fastest cyclist based entirely on his height. In, in 1878, he beat John Keane, who was the world's fastest professional and was the world's fastest professional. He'd beaten everyone in, in England and everyone in Europe and then gone to America and beaten everyone there. And an especially arranged match in, at the Cambridge University ground the Honourable Ion Keith Falconer beat John Keane by a yard. And this was a big deal at the time. And I loved the fact that uh, that Keith Falconer wrote to his sister-in-law. He had a very long correspondence with his sister-in-law, which I must have I don't quite understand, but there's an enormous number of letters. Um, and he wrote saying that he had completely forgotten about the specially arranged match until a few days before when uh, one of his fellow students had asked him how preparations for it were going and he had to admit he had entirely slipped his mind. So he said uh, he gave up smoking um, was the first thing he did. And he got up in the early morning to breathe the air. And that was his training to take on the world's finest professional cyclist. He gave up smoking and got up early to breathe the morning air. He actually, he also, he wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on shorthand, which is pleasingly odd. Um, and he was, the, he was the Cambridge University professor of Arabic. And he became a missionary and died in Aden um, in his early 30s, um, which is, you know, an enormously sad. He's a hugely talented, a hugely talented man. So, I'd like to have gone to her for a ride with him, and I'd love to have gone for a ride with him around Cambridge because that's where I live now. Um, and I would love to have seen what his idea of, of a local ride was. I loved him. The other character I loved was um, Colonel Pope, Colonel Albert Pope, who was an American entrepreneur. He was, I think I described him as the Napoleon of bicycles. Uh, but he was, you might recognize a more obvious resonance as perhaps um, Henry Ford. Albert Pope built up an enormous bicycle industry in the you know, 1870s, 1880s and into the 1890s. You know, he bought up all the patents. It was very American. He had an enormous retinue of, um, of lawyers and he bought up all the patents for anything relating to bicycles so that anyone in the US who wanted to build a bicycle or import a bicycle had to pay Albert Pope to do it. But he was also a real philanthropist. He loved cycling. He was a proper cyclist. He wasn't just in it for the money. He, pay, he paid to resurface a street so that people could see how wonderful cycling would be if all the streets were this smooth. He imported European cycling magazines and then just gave them away to encourage cycling because he wanted people to ride bicycles. He supported um, the early court cases, supporting the rights of cyclists in the US to ride on the roads. That's just two. I mean, you're right. There are there are others. Mile a minute Murphy, who set the first a record for riding at sixty miles an hour behind a train on the Long Island Railroad, which behind a steam train in eighteen ninety nine. 
Um, which sounds absolutely terrifying. Also, the first, the first, he became a policeman. He was the first policeman ever to fly an aeroplane in the course of his duties. Another adventurer. There are, there are a lot of these. Cycling seems to attract people who are interesting and a little bit different. Yeah, I got that impression. I mean, it might be a sort of element of vanity person thinking that yeah well if you're interested in cycling you must be interesting but it does seem to have that Um, and I don't know if that's because people are going against the grain in some way because at at least initially the bicycle was very novel and new and slightly controversial and then in its later years you know it's against the grain of of motor domination and to ride a bicycle is an act of doing something different from most people at least in our country Um, since since the time when the great extinction of, of cycling came about, uh, there certainly there's there's the, the, there was always kind of a, a nearly a countercultural thing about cycling. To be a cyclist, particularly from the late 1950s when when cycling went into decline, I think to be a cyclist from there through to the 1990s, the early 2000s was it was definitely to make a decision about yourself and how you were presenting yourself to the world of what you were. Um, and that's an era that obviously a lot of us can remember very clearly when cyclists were a very distinct group. Um, so it's, it is quite tempting, I think, to draw parallels from there back to the early days of cycling when, again, to, to set yourself up as a cyclist was to make quite a statement about yourself. So what did cause cycling to decline so fast in Britain um, at, that, at that point? What, what, what were the underlying reasons I could read you a little bit from the book, actually, that um, that talks a little bit about that late eight, late nineteen fifties um, decline. Um, but immediately post war, actually, things went pretty well because there was still rationing. There weren't a lot of cars around, and a lot of people rode bicycles. And you know, touring took off again after the war. The great, you know, the great nineteen thirties cycle touring boom picked up again, and actually, cycling touring club membership rose in the late nineteen nineteen forties. Um, the the cycling press at that point were predicting great times ahead. Um, there was a quote from from Cycling Magazine saying, "Cycling will advance in popularity to saturation point. There will be a time where there are no non cyclists left." And that's pretty much where I pick up um, pick up here, which is to say that if only that had been true, bicycle sales started to falter in the early nineteen fifties. The industry blamed, among other things, national service, which diverted the young from cycling. And sales tax was levied at 33% of bicycles, which didn't help. There was a certain amount of hand-wringing. Saturation point looked a little further down the road. All that, though, was small arms fire compared to the atom bomb that was heading for cycling. When Harold Macmillan stood up at a Conservative Party rally in Bedford in 1957 and said, most of our people have never had it so good, what the British people heard was, buy a car. Buy it now. You deserve it. The whole island is going to be like California. Didn't you hear me? I said, buy a car. If you look at a graph of car ownership in Britain through the 20th century, you'll find it ambles along doing nothing especially extraordinary until the mid-1950s. At that point, it turns and roars abruptly off the top of the scale. It took 60 years for the UK to get from zero cars to 4 million. It took only another six to get to 10 million. At the start of the 1950s, fewer than 20% of British households had a car. But by 1965, that figure was 50%. All those cycle tourists? Well, here's the thing. For decades, the proud assumption had been that their cycling was motivated by a simple love of the world's greatest invention and by the nobility of travelling by their own honest sweat. But it turned out they weren't all that interested in cycling after all. All they wanted to do was get out of the house and go somewhere. And if they could do that on a Morris Minor, well, so much the better. 
They could listen to the radio and take a proper picnic, and the baby didn't have to travel in a sidecar made from a packing crate. No one really saw this coming. They probably should have done. There was a repressed demand for cars from before the war. Those families who hadn't bought them then for fear to be requisitioned by the government. Post-war, pent-up aspiration, a booming economy and the sudden arrival on the market of cars like the Mini, which were both cheap and desirable, led to an explosion in motoring. The first motorway opened in 1958 and by the early 1960s the traffic jam had thoroughly arrived. British transport had changed out of all recognition in less than a decade. CTC membership dropped to 18,000. The total miles ridden in Britain fell from 12 billion in 1951 to not much more than 2 billion by the early 1970s. It was a rout, a comprehensive defeat by an enemy that no one was even worried about because everybody had convinced themselves that cyclists wouldn't want cars even if they could have them. It was classic class cringe. Cars were for posh people, not merely for people who could afford them. And this, this decline took a hold very, very suddenly. 1958 was, was the pivotal year. 1958 was the year that cycling died um, because the car simply took off. And within a handful of years, uh, it was embarrassing to be seen as a cyclist. I interviewed a man called Peter Hopkins for the book, who was a cyclist through the 1950s, 60s and 70s and, 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 and never, never, never stopped cycling. But he said his wife had been to um, a conference for work at a posh hotel in the Midlands and she'd taken her bicycle in the car so that she could go for a ride when she was there. And the hotel management made her hide it around the back of the hotel so that nobody would see it because they were scared that other guests arriving and seeing a bicycle would go and stay somewhere else. That was That was where cycling was for a few years. And now where we are is that we get a bit of that, but we also get accused of being elitist, smug cyclists and spending £5,000 on expensive bicycles and cycling is the new golf. The transition has genuinely been very, very quick, but there is still something about the identity of cyclists that people will find a reason somewhere not to like cyclists for whatever reason it has to be. You know, If they don't like them because they're working class, that's one thing. If they don't like them because they're posh, that's another thing. And it's, it, it, there's no contradiction about holding, holding both beliefs simultaneously. Do you understand where that hostility comes from? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is something you've talked about on the, um, on, on, on the show before. I think a lot of it is, is sort of psychology. If you look at people like Ian Walker at the University of Bath, who's, who's done a lot of work in this, it, it has to do with that. I think it starts off with the idea of an outgroup, precisely because cyclists have such a clear identity. It's easier to identify a cyclist because they're on a bicycle. Um, and I think the strength of that identity means that they're a very, very easy group to not like. It's very, very easy to impute all the bad characteristics of a cyclist to all cyclists. And I, and I think that hostility starts there. I, I think it, it has to do with, with having to share the road because if all cyclists just rode around velodromes, I don't think people who don't, I don't think, don't think non-cyclists would feel particularly strongly about them one way or another. So I, I think there's that outgroup psychology is, is part of it. And it always has been. If, if, if you look back to the, the, the early days of the bicycle, there, are, there was a court case in the 1870s um, where a coachman brought down a cyclist on the Great North Road near Barnet, deliberately brought down a cyclist on the Great North Road near Barnet and was uh, was successfully prosecuted for doing so. And it's an almost exact analogy of some of the things that happened today. Why, if so many people were cycling, were their interests so easily set aside? 
I think it's because motoring was seen as aspirational and motoring was seen as the future. And that was, I think, the case from sort of the roaring 20s onwards. People, you know, people wanted to have cars. People could see that cars were how, how the world was going to be. And I think it was very, very hard to get support for something that felt like an old technology. I mean, maybe it's a little bit like the railways in the 1960s. It was very, very hard to get political impetus behind the railways in the 1960s and 70s because the car was going to beat them too. Um, and I, I, think, I, think that was, I think that was a significant part of it. But you're right, there were some extraordinary... In the 1930s, there was Lord Moore Brabazon, who was a transport minister in the 1930s, who argued that the best way to improve a cyclist safety was to kill more cyclists because then they'd learn to get out of the way. He was comparing them to putting dead chickens out of the radi- out of your car radiator in the early days of in the early days of motoring, so the chickens learned to get out of the way and the cyclists would do the same, which is really horrific, actually. So towards the end of the book, you talk about the current resurgence in interest in cycling. And I'm wary of calling it a bike boom because we did have a quite a heated debate about this on, on the bike show a, a few months ago. Um, but there is discernibly an increase in interest in cycling, whether it's on the sport side, huge success at the elite level, greater participation in sportives and things like that. And then you've got places dotted around the country, London in particular, where more people measurably are getting around by bike um i I won't ask you to recount how we how it happened because i think your analysis is is quite nuanced and interesting and pretty much gets it right but you do mention the kind of fragility of the boom such as it is at the minute what's your take on what will happen in the next five to ten years will people just find something else to be interested in or or has cycling taken root and and, and is, is there going to be a great new tree of cycling that will feature as another chapter of uh, of a future book maybe the 300th anniversary of the, of the invention of the bicycle <laughs> if, they'll come back to live, this, this live, moment if i live that long <laughs> um I, I you know it's really very very hard to know one of the things i noticed very very strongly when i was researching the book was that the very clear majority of 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 the the, the books i read when i was researching this had a final chapter that declared victory for the bicycle and that cycling was going to win and cycling was the future. Um, particularly books written through the, the late 1960s and 70s and 80s talking about kind of oil prices and oil shocks and environmentalism. And without exception, they were all wrong. There have been revivals and booms before and they have nearly all petered out. I'm not being, I hope, more negative about it than is necessary, but it is, as, 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 as you say, it is my contention that it is all rather fragile. We don't have an enormous political force behind this. We've got a certain amount of infrastructure being built here and there that supports cycling and is, is a little bit of a political commitment, but a lot of the cycling that's going on is still suspended from the GB track team, um, from Team Sky, from racing not because people see bike racing and TV and decide they're going to commute to work, but because that sort of sports success is a very important driver of the politics that, that, that we do have. So things like, I mean, the reason Boris Johnson could invest money in cycling in London was because there was such a feel-good surrounding bike racing that cycling was politically a good thing to be seen being involved with. Um, clearly at the minute, we have a lot of problems in, in, in British bike racing. 
and those will those will certainly have an impact because they make it harder for somebody like the current mayor Sadiq Khan. It's harder to, to push him towards supporting cycling on the same basis that Boris Johnson could could have supported cycling. So that concerns me. A lot of it is still, in some ways, rather fashion driven. Um, but I think we're at a critical few years. I think if cycling continues to grow as it has done, it certainly ought to take root in enough cities to seed everywhere else in terms of kind of because it's like it's still it's a very urban thing somehow it's still the towns and cities are still where we have to get cycling to really work to really click to get people onto their bikes and we're not quite there yet but we're nearly there and we might make it and we might not but it's so hard to see into the future the things that can blow this off course I know a, a string of a, a string of of, of of accidents that attract attention in somewhere like London. We had that a couple of years ago. It damaged cycling quite significantly because it made it look far more dangerous than it is. And it is just the way these things play out in the news, the way they play out politically, is is hard to predict. So I am not overwhelmingly confident that we're in for the grand new era of cycling, but I think we've got a reasonable chance. Well, it's a terrific book. I'm going to ask you whether there were any mysteries that you didn't manage to solve, any sources that you didn't manage to track down, something that you, you, know, you just wish you could have unearthed in some dusty archive somewhere. I never did find out who put pedals on a bicycle. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to. And many, many better people than me have, have tried to find an answer to that. That's one of the, the big that's one of the big non-answered issues of, of the bicycle is who turned the original dandy horse or the running machine who, who put put pedals on that um i love in a way the fact that we don't know because i think it, it's such a demo bicycle is such a democratic invention that it's nice that we don't know who who you know took this 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 major step um but as, as you know if you're writing a history it's the kind of thing that would be quite nice to it would be quite nice if that had been nailed done in truth there weren't a lot of mysteries that i, I didn't get answers to because i find i was sort of following following the current of cycling and finding the things that interested me and actually so much of it has been has been so so well written down so so well dealt with um it would have been nice to have found more information about uh some of the long tours that people took in the 1920s and 30s there were some wonderful kind of round the world cyclists and major european tours and trans-american cyclists and things and they quite often didn't actually write very much about what they were doing. They tended to go and give lectures and things like that um, because that was what was popular in that era. And it would have been nice to have known a little bit more about some of that. But for the most part, I, I found a lot of what I wanted to. And I, I found that the whole story of cycling hung together rather nicely. It, it's, it's a nice story to tell. Well, it's a terrific story, and the book is called Recyclists by my guest, Michael Hutchinson. Um, Recyclists, 200 Years on Two Wheels. It's out now, published by Bloomsbury. Well, thank you very much for your time, Michael. Um, it's I been a pleasure, it, and I recommend everyone to, um, to check out the book because I really, really enjoyed it. And I read a lot of books about cycling, um, and not all of them um, are great, and certainly very few of them are as good as this one. That's very kind, Jack. Thank you.